Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that uh, you have made yourself known to us um, in, in your Son, Jesus Christ, and that um, by the Holy Spirit you have inspired uh, the writing of your word that we might read about you, uh, that though we have not had the opportunity to touch Jesus in the flesh or to hear his audible voice, we might know the love that you have for us evident in him. We thank you that um, we thank you that you have given us faith in him, and we pray that you would strengthen that faith. We pray that by your Holy Spirit you would open our eyes to see him, our ears to hear him, our hearts to receive him, and that uh, the words of my mouth, the meditations of our hearts, would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. It was always unclear who Jesus was. Even the disciples struggled to identify him. Jesus calmed the storm, and together they wondered, who is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? The, they listened to his teaching, and they, they witnessed him cast out demons, and they asked, what is this, a new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. An accurate understanding of the identity of Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth, Nazareth was always a work in progress. Sure, there were moments of clarity. Peter nailed it with his confession. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. Even the Roman centurion at the foot of the cross saw clearly, if only for a brief moment, when he admitted truly this man was the Son of God. But most of the time there was confusion about who this man was, this Jesus of Nazareth. It wasn't until after the resurrection of Jesus or until they had received the gift of the Holy Spirit from the Father and the glorified Son that the disciples began to identify him in his nature and in his work. And informing their understanding was the only scriptures they had at that time, what we call the Old Testament. There in the Old Testament, they found predictions about the role Jesus would play in redemption history. There in the Old Testament, they found resonances that were repeated in the life of Jesus in order to teach those who have ears to hear about the person of Christ. This is exactly how John's gospel tell, tells us the process unfolded. The disciples searched the Old Testament for him, and there they found him in shadow and type and in promise and prophecy. John 12 tells the story of Palm Sunday when Jesus rode into town on a donkey, and the author of this gospel quotes Zechariah 9 to prove the significance of this occasion. Zechariah 9 tells us that the one who rides into Jerusalem on a donkey is a king. Jesus knew that. It's why he did what he did. But the disciples didn't pick up on the significance of this act or make the connection to Zechariah until much later, when the spirit who inspired the holy scriptures revealed it to them in secret. The gospel of John quotes Zechariah 9, but the author also admits that his disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then, then they remembered that these things were written about him and had been done to him. 
It took them some time to catch up and to search the scriptures for lessons about Jesus now that they had experienced him, the fulfillment of all God's words and promises. Reading Zechariah 9, apart from the reality of Jesus, and apart from the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, made it easy to miss the significance of this prophecy. It would have felt random or incomplete, much like Zechariah 11 feels when you read through this prophecy for the first, second, or third time. It is, to me, more confusing even than the prophecy about a woman in a basket being carried away by, being carried away by two other women with stork-like wings. I read Zechariah 11, and I scratched my head. It's my assumption that you are scratching yours as well. And yet, in this confusing prophecy is an echo that the disciples heard when they were searching the scriptures, trying to identify Jesus. In the midst of the muddied waters of Zechariah 11 is a discernible pattern that helps us to better understand not only Jesus, but ourselves. And as we begin to wade into the waters of Zechariah 11, I think it'll be most helpful to give you a, a broad explanation of this prophecy. In Zechariah 11, Zechariah is being asked to do something that is common for prophets. Zechariah is being asked to role play, to, be, to, to pretend to be someone other than himself. And in this case, Zechariah was asked to play a character from the past, the shepherd of the flock doomed to slaughter. At this point, Zechariah should have called his agent and complained about being cast for such a part, but Zechariah was without representation at the time and therefore had few options before him. The shepherd of the flock doomed to slaughter he would be. And it's necessary here to identify this flock doomed to slaughter. Who are they? Why were they doomed to slaughter? This was the Hebrew people before the exile. They were doomed to slaughter because they were shepherded by a ruling class that did not care for them as shepherds are expected to do. They did not lay down their life for the sheep, but in fact led them astray. And on account of this failure of their leaders, the the flock was doomed to slaughter. They had been led astray, and like a sheep wandering about by itself, their future was almost certainly bleak. Zechariah was supposed to take up the role of shepherd alongside these negligent rulers, and the result was his rejection. In verse 8, Zechariah observes that he became impatient with, him, with them, and they hated him. They valued him worth 30 pieces of silver, which they paid to him and told him off. It was a miserly sum that Zechariah refused to keep, throwing it instead into the treasury. It was an insult to him to be valued at only 30 pieces of silver. And so he despised the payment. And he gave up his role as shepherd, and he left the flock to be led into slaughter. I will not be your shepherd, he says in verse 9. What is to die, let it die. What is to be destroyed, let it be destroyed. And let those who are left devour the flesh of one another. And then he takes his staff, which he had named favor, and he breaks it to symbolize that this people will no longer be governed by favor. And he took his other staff, which he called union, and he broke it 
as well to symbolize the division that would develop within this people, even between brothers. Zechariah played the role of shepherd of the Hebrew people for a time, but the leaders of this people hated him. And in the end, he was rejected by the very sheep he had come to save. And there in verse 14, ended Zechariah's part in playing a good shepherd who was rejected both by the leadership and by the sheep he had come to govern with favor and with unity. But in verse 15, Zechariah gets another call up. Again, the role he's being cast for is a shepherd, but this time he is to play a worthless shepherd. He really does need better representation, but perhaps this will be his breakout role, so he takes the job. He takes up the tools of a worthless shepherd like he's instructed to do in verse 15, and he finds himself playing the role of the slaughterer the very slaughterer that was predicted for the sheep he had shepherded in his former role. The slaughter portended for the Hebrew people under the care of their negligent leadership came true. And Zechariah is playing the shepherd who came in and stole all the sheep away. For the Hebrew people, this was Babylon and Assyria and Persia and Egypt, the many nations that throughout their history served as worthless shepherds to the Hebrew people. They did not care for the perishing or seek the wandering or heal the maimed or nourish the healthy, but devoured the flesh of the fat ones, tearing off even their hooves. Poor Zechariah had to play the role of his people's violent enemy, but he reenacted the distant history of the Hebrew people in order to serve as a warning for those who were returning to the land they had been torn from in the exile. This was a people returning to the land and choosing leadership for themselves. And Zechariah's reenactment of their past is a cautionary tale to be careful who you choose. It is a warning that all sheep must hear and heed. Be careful who you follow. And it was on account of the leadership's negligence that the people had rejected God as their true shepherd, the shepherd of their souls. He became weary with them and he was despised by the shepherds. So he sent them into exile and he allowed Nebuchadnezzar and Tiglath-Pileser and Shalmaneser and Darius and Cyrus to be shepherds for a time. But that time was coming to an end and God was gathering his sheep again in order to rule over them with favor. God came for his people, and he came for them in Jesus of Nazareth. Peter and the centurion were right. Jesus was the son of the living God, born of a woman so that he was fully human while yet retaining his full deity. He came to save God's people, to gather them in from the land of their wandering in exile. He came as a shepherd who intended to rule his people with favor. God has watched as humanity has destroyed themselves and one another and the creation that God has given us to tend. He has watched us go to war. He has watched us murder and hate one another. He has watched us grow bitter with jealousy and steal from one another. He has watched us violate and shame one another. 
He has watched us harm ourselves and strip the soil of its nutrients. He has watched us unable to control our appetites, unable to control ourselves or our insatiable desires. He has watched us go into slavery and succumb to death. He has watched this for years, for millennia, and in Jesus, he has had compassion on us. He has sent his only son to be a good shepherd for us, to show us favor. You see, in Luke 4, Jesus announced the beginning of his ministry. And for this announcement, he chose a passage from the prophet Isaiah to describe his mission. He read it in a synagogue and he read this, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He came with favor in his hands and in his heart and every step of the way he was rejected. In Luke 4, he announces the beginning of his ministry in the most natural place, his hometown of Nazareth. And people said to one another, isn't this Joseph's son? Who does he think he is? His hometown rejected him. And so he went to gather sheep elsewhere. The people flocked to him. But as was the case with Zechariah, the leaders, both civil and religious, hated him. The people sensed in Jesus a compassion and a a true love that was absent altogether from their leadership. And the leaders had him put to death because they felt they were losing the sheep to him. The jealousy of the human heart drove them to crucify the son of the living God. But they had help. For one of his very own betrayed him. One of the 12 friends Jesus had chosen to be his disciples gave him over for a paltry sum of 30 pieces of silver. He valued the son of the living God at but 30 pieces of silver, the equivalent of a month's wages, but certainly not, some, uh, not a sum that would transform your life. And when he was crucified, he would hear the voices of large crowds shouting, crucify him. They would spit on him and mock him and shake their heads in shame forever thinking that this man could have been their shepherd the long-awaited Messiah. The Gospel of John summarizes for us the ministry of Jesus Christ when it says of Jesus that the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. Zechariah dutifully portrayed two shepherds in order to warn the sheep about themselves as they prepared to choose for themselves a shepherd to lead them. Sheep are poor judges of what will be good for them. They choose those things that lead to death while valuing the one who offers life and light at 30 pieces of silver, a paltry sum for the one who created all things and from his abundance provides for his sheep, leading them beside still waters, satisfying them with good things so that they lie down in green pastures, contented and full. Zechariah was thus rejected. So was Jesus. And, if, and we, if we're honest with ourselves, are tempted to do the same, to exchange the true shepherd of our souls for a poor substitute that will not satisfy us but enslave us. 
the great origin theologian from the first half of the third century, invites us to think with him about the betrayal of Judas. He writes, let us consider what Judas said to the Jewish priests. What will you give me if I hand him over to you? He was willing to take money in exchange for handing over the word of God. They do the same thing who accept sensual or worldly goods in exchange for handing over and casting out from their souls the Savior and word of truth who came to dwell with them. Indeed, it would be fitting to apply Judas's example to all who show contempt for the word of God and betray him, as it were, by committing sin for the sake of money or for any selfish motive. People who behave in this way appear openly to be calling out to the powers of the enemy who offer worldly gain in return for the sin of betraying God's word, saying, what will you give me if I hand him over to you? Origen is, is generous in talking about people over there, people who behave in this way. His difficult message is more acceptable if he speaks in this distant manner, but he is speaking about us. For we are sheep in whom exists the daily temptation to exchange the word of God, Jesus Christ, the true shepherd of our souls, for the fulfillment of a passing sensual desire or for the accumulation of comfort and money or possessions which we cannot take with us which we, when we inevitably die. We are a sheep who have been given the rarest treasure in the world in Jesus Christ, and yet we walk around asking the world, what will you give me if I hand him over to you? We're not peculiar in this behavior. It's a characteristic of all human beings. Cain, the firstborn and therefore the heir to his father's inheritance, traded his birthright for the sake of some lentil stew. His hunger was more urgent and immediate and thus more real and valuable to him than the riches he would inherit if he but deferred the fulfillment of his desire. Instead, he temporarily filled his stomach and emptied out his hope. It was short-sighted, but short-sightedness is apparently an affliction that is inherent to sheep. And it was for this reason that Jesus asked his disciples, what does it profit a person to gain the whole world and forfeit their soul? This is the risk we take in giving ourselves to sin, the forfeiture of our souls to a worthless shepherd who will not care for those being destroyed, or seek the young, or heal the maimed, or nourish the healthy, but devour the flesh of the fat ones, tearing off even their hooves. We risk making Satan our shepherd, and our desires our guide, and thus forfeiting our inheritance in Christ. Not that Jesus saves us on account of our goodness or our obedience. No, we are saved by his grace alone, but through our refusal to deny ourselves, we may very well prove that his grace has no hold on us, that we do not understand him. Through our disobedience, we demonstrate our contempt for the word of God. Refusing to deny ourselves, we come to deny the shepherd of our souls, willing to exchange him for a fleeting pleasure. He knows that we are sheep. He knows that we are but dust. And so Zechariah warns you to be careful who you choose to serve as your shepherd. And Jesus himself calls us to take seriously the risk that is before us in this decision. In Matthew 18, he says that if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. 
It's better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. He uses hyperbole here, but he uses it in order to communicate the stakes at play if you begin to let your eye grow accustomed to the many offerings of this world, but fail to look beyond the physical attractions of this world and look instead to what is invisible, to the inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. What is this inheritance promised to those who depart this life with a constant and abiding faith in Jesus Christ that issued faith in good works? It is too grand to fully articulate, too glorious to comprehend. It is rest from all your striving to impress. It is justice for all the wrongs you have suffered. It is healing for all your afflictions of body and of mind. It is love that is unconditional and surrounds you on every side. It is desires that no longer trouble or disgust you. It is work that is no longer frustrating or indefinite. It is relationships that are mended, peace in the streets, joy in your hearts. It is, dare I even say, the glory that you crave. The faith of Moses is recorded for us in Hebrews 11. And there we learn that Moses was tempted to exchange his godly inheritance in Christ for the riches of Egypt and the fleeting pleasures of sin. But beginning in verse 24, we're told that Moses refused to, call the, to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Moses did what the Holy Spirit is calling us to this morning, to deny ourselves in order to gain Christ and all his benefits. And his life was recorded in what has come to be known as the Hall of Faith. We sit here and we marvel at this man. In the long history of the saints, he is celebrated for his faith. And do you not think that for Moses, this makes his choice to suffer rather than enjoy the comfort of sin somehow worth it? Do you think that in the joy of heaven, in the presence of God, he regrets his decision? The angels marvel at him, and so do we. And Jesus tells us that in returning to him over and over again throughout our lives, choosing him over the fleeting pleasures of sin, we will, likewise, we, we will likewise be rejoiced over. Jesus tells the story of a shepherd who had 99 sheep, but one went astray. The shepherd, hoping to recover that one sheep, went searching for it, and when he found it, he rejoiced, and he put it on his shoulders, and he carried it back to the flock. And when he arrived home, he called together his friends and his neighbors, and he threw a party to celebrate the sheep who had once been lost, but now was found. And Jesus ends this story by saying that such a party awaits any sinner who repents. The angels rejoice. The saints marvel, and God smiles upon the one who denies themselves to return to the flock and remain there while the world around them is asking, what will you give in exchange for your soul? Looking to Jesus and your inheritance in him, may you know the riches of your inheritance. 
and so refuse to exchange your birthright for the satisfaction of a good meal or the measly sum of 30 silver coins. May you instead come to know, after a lifetime of faithfulness, the fullness of your hope, and may the angels marvel at what you passed up in order to have Christ your reward. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.